I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 144 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Richard Hawkins and also Anthony McGill. Now, this is the first time that I've actually given up the microphone over to a guest host, and uh, this is actually a new sort of phenomenon. It's kind of like what happens on Instagram channels. You might see that, for example, an orchestra might let their bassoonists take over their Instagram for the day, and uh, sort of a trend now on social media to have these sort of takeover things happen. So this was an idea that was proposed, and I thought it was a really interesting one, not only because Richard has a uh, sort of... With all these people we're going to be seeing, there's actually four interviews coming up, but he has a rapport with all of them uh, before, of course, the interview, which is not something that I often have with the guests. I, I think that I you know, do have very interesting conversations with these people, but I didn't know Anthony McGill 20 years ago, for example. And so this is what's really interesting about these conversations. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for a conversation between two not only esteemed artists, but also friends. So I guess I should introduce both guests today. We have Richard Hawkins, who is going to be the host of the conversation for the most part until my Q&A at the end, but he is the professor of clarinet at the Oberlin Conservatory and also a master mouthpiece craftsman. And he will be chatting with Anthony McGill, who is the principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. They discuss dealing with insecurities while playing. Believe it or not, that actually still happens at uh, Anthony's level. And I was surprised to hear him say this. It reminds me way back in in episode uh, nine, I think, when I talked to Martin Frost and he mentioned the same sort of thing. So if you're the kind of player out there who does get a bit nervous, I don't know if it's consoling, but it sounds like it may never go away. But um, anyway, they also talk about playing the difference between the Met Opera Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic, how to collaborate in a professional and productive way, advice for those thinking of auditioning for music in college, and what's next on Anthony's so-called bucket list. Patreon supporters, there is no extended version today. I'm really sorry about that, um, but there just wasn't time. We had a very limited time slot for the conversation. But I do want to say that your support still goes a long way, and this conversation, I don't want to say it was made possible by the trip that happened way back in 2016 when I went to uh, Chicago for uh, Midwest Clinic, but it was definitely helped out. I got the chance way back then to meet Anthony and invite him on the show, which I think when it came time to do this, made it a little more easy to have him come on. And of course, I'd love to have him back for a second round, but every dollar that you do support the show with, I do put towards making the show a better sort of place, as I said last time. Um, So I especially want to thank the 71 Patreon backers who are helping to make the show possible on a monthly basis. Um, Also, one last thing before we get started, I just want to say again, for those who are just tuning into this and missed the last couple episodes, This was an interview that happened live on YouTube. And while it was great to have people tuning in, especially towards the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, things were very unsure and it was nice to get your mind off of stuff, um, I wasn't very pleased by the way the audio quality turned out on most of these. Um, So Richard and Anthony's microphone actually sounds excellent for the whole time until about the 40 minute mark when I come in for the Q&A and there's just something going on. It sounds like I'm talking through a fishbowl or something. So do bear with me. As I mentioned before, these will be the only few episodes that are done on YouTube like this, and then I'll be going back to my normal sort of style of recording so that we can get the best sound quality possible here on the podcast. So also thank you, of course, to our sponsors. You can take your playing to the next level with Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. For Canadian customers, be sure to check out the new store that lets you pay in Canadian dollars. And for absolutely everyone listening, I have an exclusive coupon for you. You can use code CLARINET at checkout to save 10% on your purchase. That includes mouthpieces, barrels, bells, even clarinets. That's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. 
Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European Cut is the preferred read by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Karadji Freddy, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with great ease of articulation, and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and way down to the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store or at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. Uh, this is super. This is really fun. We've never done anything like this before. No, we never have. It's really, it's really. I'm so, I've been looking forward to this a lot. So I'm really very excited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's great. great. So yeah, uh, Hawkeye, as we used to call him in in high school, uh, was my teacher, and uh, here we are, like a hundred years later. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so many years later. Yeah, it's a crazy cycle, isn't it? It's it's just amazing uh, to see all these amazing people doing amazing work around the world. So I'm so happy to talk to you. I I I have a whole list of questions, you know. I mean, coming from the academic side of me, so I I, I want to sort of explore some of the things that I think are really uh, important to a lot of our listeners. And and I guess first of all, just you know, what the balance of your life? It's pretty crazy, I'm sure, right? And all the things that you do and orchestral playing and solo playing and teaching. And I guess my first question is just, you know, what's it like balancing that now for you? Yeah, well, what's great about right now is that I don't have to <laughs> balance any of it. Right. <laughs> there is, uh, there's family and there's some still teaching online mm -hmm. and, and that's it. You know, I've, I've appeared a couple times online playing some different things, a couple fundraisers and some important things like that. Uh, but it's actually a really important time to kind of think about what what that looked like, what the last 20 years have been like. And um, when I was studying with you about 24, just 24, 25, 26 years ago, um, you know, and then jumping to now from like, a, you know, about that time till now, I've been just playing constantly, you know, <laughs> I've just mm -hmm. been, you know, um, playing concerts a lot. And I was in Cincinnati for those four years when I was from the time I was like 21. And so it's actually a really interesting time to reflect on that mm -hmm. and reflect on what that has been like. And, and basically it's been um, a really fulfilling ride. So, um, you know, as far as balancing everything, it's just everything has been very important for for my life i think i i discovered the love of teaching just because i happen to be lucky and have really great teachers like yourself and mentors and from a from a very young age and so the whole concept of of sharing what knowledge i've learned from my teachers and passing that on to you know others to the next generation has been something that it's been like that's kind of been a no-brainer like i I've always felt like I, I had to teach. I thought it was, I think it's a, an important part of just being a musician, mm. period, is actually like sharing the knowledge that you gain from your, your mentors and, and their mentors, you know, and just passing yeah. that knowledge down for the art form. So, um, and as far as everything else I do, performing, that's just um, also just a natural part of everything I've always dreamt of doing. So it feels, it's always felt like um, very natural. One thing I learned from you at Interlochen is actually how you really do need to learn how to do everything, you know, or mm -hmm. improve at everything. Solos, you know, solos, orchestra, uh, chamber music, 
you know, scales, fundamentals, all of this, all of the stuff that it takes to become, you know, a well-rounded musician. I think, you know, at age 15 and 16 or 16 and 17, you know, I, I learned that it was an important part of just my, my study. And so that, that has luckily for me continued as I've grown up <laughs> so right. to speak, an appreciation for, for, all, for all of it. Yeah. Well, speaking of that and, and sort of your youth, you know, if you looked at those days and you think of the hardest things for you for the, on the clarinet and compare that to now, are they the same? Are they different? How do you feel about it every day? Yeah, that's really a great question. I think that one of the things I, I learned um, from you is that you can never stop improving. The one thing I remember you telling me that was very interesting is that you know, every day there, there's probably going to be some clarinetist that is born that is better than you at the clarinet. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> and, and many and, of them are watching today. Yeah, and that has proven to be, yeah. no matter what has happened in my career, that has proven to me to be very true mm. throughout all the years that I've been doing this. And, um, and it's, it's inspiring and it kind of pushes me to continue to work and try to get better at different things. Ironically, one of my big weaknesses was playing orchestra, you know, playing orchestra repertoire and playing orchestra excerpts and rhythm and having like a fundamental kind of um, uh, a fundamental like base there of rhythmic um, solidity and fundamental uh, regarding rhythm and pitch and all of these things. And and so it's, it's actually very interesting that one of my biggest weaknesses as a youngster um, became something that, you know, now I've, you know, kind of had some success at as far mm -hmm. as later on in my career. And, and that's really interesting that, you know, like when I came to you, I was probably playing Weber concertino or something and maybe. Yeah. Rabo probably. Weber yeah. Concertino. Something like that. <laughs> right. about, I mean, and I had had some orchestral, orchestral experience, but I remember you put me um, as uh, in the in the band, so I could get some real ensemble experiences, mm. um, you know, playing in the band at Interlock and and understanding about you know blend and rhythm and playing in a whole big section of clarinet players. So I mean, it's it it is really interesting. So I I feel like the same challenges I had back then I have now, frankly. Mm. Like I don't I don't think they've changed really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I it's always working. the same kind of grind every day, right? The the things that we we know we have to practice and the things we have to keep in shape all the time because it's it's an art form that leaves you very quickly, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it really like, once you think once you think you figured something out, that's when you know you're not very going to be very good at it for very long. Absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. Are there any particular? Um, techniques that you've discovered in your I'm sort of asking every guest you know and, and about this and I think everyone as we do practice every day we, the daily grind of the scales and the fundamentals and those things you know are there things that you've discovered in your own playing that that um, that no one did you know explain to you or teach you when you're younger are there things that sort of that you're you're gaining on techniques or things that you would like to share with with our our uh, audience that's a that's a really interesting question. And I think that some of the processes that I've go gone through have to do with kind of the process of, of, of gearing up for performance, the process of gearing up mentally for 
for a successful performance. Mm. And, and some of that, I feel like I have done uh, spent a lot of time thinking about and researching and reading about. And that has to do with just a lot of um, mental prep. And I think when I first got started thinking about this, it's one of the times, um, and as everyone is going to realize on this, on this talk, you were actually really, this is what I mean by you changed my life, is that a lot of these things that I still think about uh, came from you, ideas that I, I vividly remember you telling me. And I'm sorry, of, I missed that part. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's them, really nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very true. And one of them uh, is that I used to chat a lot and be really social and kind of, you know, uh, before performances and get kind of out of sorts. And so I would take that energy onto the stage and like get really out of control, like, you know, normally. And you were like, maybe you should try just, you know, being, being a little calmer, like taking your time, breathing, just not getting so chatty and worked up, you know, before mm. you perform, you know, for speed. And, um, and so I've always thought about, okay, what can I do before the performance, after I've done all the practice and I've done all this stuff that will help uh, that performance get closer? Um, and well, but in, in college also, I learned that um, a process that, that really helps is just what kind of preparation. And I think when I was, when I was younger, I didn't, for instance, I didn't record myself as much or, and I didn't actually take that feedback from my recordings. And now that, you know, I'm not having a lesson every week, it is, that has definitely in my professional career been the biggest thing, um, the giving the actual feedback to myself as though I was a teacher um, that has helped me, you know, um, improve and kind of maintain more, more than anything else. Um, in other, in other, to keep going on that point, in other professions and like, for instance, sport, a lot of the times you still connect with your coaches and your teachers like every week, you know, <laughs> and, and so to have that concept as a musician that even if I don't do that, um, which I probably should, we should probably all do that. <laughs> I just wouldn't, I, I don't know if I could take, I could, I could take the truth, you know, if I, if I had right. you'd be like, you don't want to know what I, I have to tell you, what you're doing wrong. But at least for myself, I can kind of be self, self-critical in, a, in a, an important way, in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's sort of talking about, the concentration and sort of the the art of focusing right and the mind the consistency of the mind and and sort of the everyday playing that's something that i find is is becoming more and more of a challenge for students and the fact that you know every day we're multitasking especially now and um i think it's difficult for anyone at this point to sort of sit alone and practice scales by themselves with with no phone and no iPad and, you know, nothing near them. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of students. And, and um, in fact, recently I was, I, I, we had auditions at Oberlin for, for next year's orchestra in the fall. And I, I, I added the, one of the Paganini caprices um, to the audition list, which is really hard, right? Really hard stuff. And, and, and it's kind of amazing. What was the hardest part of it? for all the students was the, the mental focus of getting through just oodles of notes for three or four pages without breaking down. Right. I mean, that's really hard to do for everybody. Right. So my question to you is that now, you know, you're, you're doing this all the time. You're, you're, you're on the go. And, and are there things that you're thinking about in performances that, you know, that are sort of your, 
staple fundamentals, right? That you're thinking to to either that's you know holding back or or as far as the the, ex, the excitement level, just so that you've got a, a a balance of it throughout a performance. You know what what things do you think about um, in in the actual performance and or afterwards? Because I think we learn a lot from ourselves after a performance. You know whether you remember anything or you remember a lot. I think that's a really interesting question. Right. I think that um, putting making sure that before I play, I have spots in the part where I actually mark um, like arrows going backwards. Uh-huh. Like I prepare ahead of time to play slower than I think I should. Mm-hmm. So that, that really helps me a lot. And often that happens in the practice too, where I will make sure to practice something much slower than I think I'll go. So because I'm going to add a whole bunch of metronome clicks to the tempo when I'm playing like this long technical passage, for instance. And so just mentally during the performance as well, knowing to play um, within myself. So this is in the preparation. This is during that knowing that I don't need to try to do something um, different. So the preparation is that if I if I can play Mendelssohn Scherzo at like you know, 84, but I know sometimes I can play it at 90, whatever, 96, mm. whatever, the fastest tempo. I know that I'm okay actually playing it at 86 or seven or whatever that is, mm. because I'll sound better doing that than mm. trying to do something that I can't do. Mm. So that's actually what I do a lot of. It's just knowing where I'm, where I, where I am right now, not where I want to get to, but like literally how can I do this the best I can right now? So I add that as a technical thing. Just play slower mm-hmm. sometimes, right? Control your speed limit. Control your speed limit, <laughs> yeah. but also then up your musical game. Mm. So up your, your um, insistence on trying to express, especially when you get excited or especially mm. when you don't feel super comfortable with everything, trying to remember in the middle of a performance, what you're trying to do, like what the goal of this performance is. Mm. And that is expression. And um, so in that way, you can kind of actively, your brain is constantly like thinking about different things, you know, but if you can kind of go to a baseline of, of um, connection with the musical, connection with the, the phrasing, or even just the plain old beauty of the music you're playing, that does that can you can be thinking about oh my gosh what does this audience think and then you can bring back you can bring mm. it back so if you're playing um, Brahms quintet or you're playing the first page of the Mozart quintet or or Mozart concert or something you start thinking about all these things that you have nothing to do with you like the audience or who's in the audience or how should I be well how's my read and then if you come back to like oh listening to something around you mm. like listening to the strings play. And that's really beautiful. That's why solo clarinet playing is actually quite difficult. Mm. So recently here at home, you know, I'm playing like this the random solo repertoire. And that's, that's the challenge of that. And I recently played a solo, uh, an entire recital with just solo clarinet repertoire. Mm. And that was really interesting because I had to really tap into how can I like say something to the audience? Because it's just me up here saying mm-hmm. it. So they don't, what's great also is that they don't know the rep. <laughs> right. so, so it takes a little pressure off. 
Mm-hmm. But you know, just these are these are a few different techniques, and you can try to ask me to get more specific if if you'd like. Well, it's interesting because I I I I think it is important that to talk about certain aspects that you know is not necessarily talked about in sort of our our pedagogy. Um, and one of the things that I I think is important is actually reacting the audi- to the audience as you're playing and and you know, our ears are pretty amazing that they can pick up so many things at one time, not only just the, you know, the, the clarinet playing and the things that we're focused on, you know, up close, but also just reacting to, you know, a big audience of people. And suddenly somebody gets up and walks out and you're like, Oh gosh, you know, you know, and, and, and how you react to that. I always talk about this in the experience of playing the Messian third movement in, in the sense of, you know, sometimes you come back to the second page of the, of the solo and down the octave and you you're thinking wow it's you know people are starting to squirm you know because it's like yeah okay we know this tune we've heard this tune before you know and so then maybe you have to play it a little faster because people are starting to move and you know there's things that you have to be a the awareness is pretty amazing of all the things that we do and that's that's one thing that i'm always really curious to hear others talk about because it's um i'm sure we all have different experiences in that i'm sure you do too no. Yeah, I think I, I think it's really it is really interesting to talk about it a little bit further. Is that oftentimes it's it's really and I talk to some of my students about this too. Is that they often don't know how kind of insecure I feel sometimes when I'm performing, mm. right? But what you have to do is like kind of fight against that mm. <laughs> basically yeah. all, oh, yeah. all the all the time. You basically just fight against it all the time. Yeah. And by what I mean by fighting is that. You have to understand and keep reminding yourself, reminding yourself every single day, every single performance, that the whole audience is there for you. Mm. You know, they're not there. I mean, they're they're there for you. Yeah, it's true. And yeah. and 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 so you need to remind yourself of that always, whether it's whether it's a grad recital, whether it's a student recital, whether it's, you know, you name it, a competition, everyone is there for you. And um, so once you start realizing that, um, it actually really does, does help. It just takes, you, you actually need to do that over and over and over again. Mm. It's just to remember, remember that. And that you're there for them. Like you're doing something that will hopefully move them and touch them. And so, yes, not saying that I don't get weirded out when someone stands up and walks out to yeah, of course, yeah, of course, <laughs> but most of the time, you know, if you walk out on stage and you're smiling and the audience sees that you are really there for them, mm. then I, after concerts, a lot of times at concerts I'm really insecure about or nervous about or whatever, I still come out smiling like this is going this is the greatest night of my life to be right. here with you. Yeah. I meet people after the concert and they say, it just looked like you were having so much fun. And I tell them, well, it's much more fun now than yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can convince yourself that that's really what you're trying to do and that's really what they want to see, then it just goes much better. Yeah. It's interesting. All of this. I mean, you know, talking about um, just the spaces that we, that we play in and what, and where you play. I mean, of course you, you play up all over the world and, and and we'll we'll say you know great and perhaps not so great spaces <laughs> and how does that affect you in the solo playing you know what kind of adjustments are you making 
you know what i i think it was one of my teachers years ago that said um you know some of the greatest clinic playing in the world has been um really a big part of the spaces that they play in right and and the kind of halls that they're working in and so i guess my question to you is that since you do a lot of the work in different kinds of halls and spaces what what kinds of things do you find yourself as a player adjusting for that's great uh it's great to talk about this too because i feel like it has gotten that in particular has gotten easier over the mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. um lots of other things haven't gotten easier but i remember when i would show up at some you know i was in my 20s and i would show up in some audition in some city and everything would just feel terrible right mm -hmm. reads every this, everything would always feel terrible because of travel because of going around and what i've noticed over the years is that and as i've changed different equipment and all of this stuff um that that you have to have something that that travels so and i i don't know if that's just experience or just i have a wide a wider variety of things to to choose from like read strengths or something when mm -hmm. i go someplace mm -hmm. um, but having that flexibility is something or that i've lowered my my standards mm -hmm. <laughs> that could be the possibility too that you actually aren't as sensitive to the micro adjustments that you're making when you play in a different space mm -hmm. or that when you play in a in a bad space that doesn't you don't feel like has much resonance resonance it doesn't affect you negatively as much mentally mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that you can just kind of go out find a read backstage that feels like it plays and then accept that what happens out there is going to happen so some of that has to do with experience like um actually just going out there or especially concerto work going out there on a different stage and knowing that whatever read that worked in rehearsal that's going to be fine mm -hmm. or close enough to fine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I've had enough bad experiences where I've walked out on stage and I've squeaked within the first, you know, few notes. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Newsflash, everybody yeah. does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so I've had enough bad, quote unquote, bad performances and bad experiences, read wise or equipment wise, whatever, or just playing, <laughs> playing that um, my ups and downs aren't, don't affect me as much. Mm. So, um, so I don't know if that that answers that question. It does, but, yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I think I think we become at a certain point um, desensitized to certain aspects um, based on the situation we're in. You know, if you're playing in a large group, you know, you know, there's certain things in the read that no one is going to hear, even three feet away from you. Um, you know, so there's there there is um, an experience level in that that I think is. It, it's hard to put your finger on like where it comes from, but I think it literally is just time and working through those different experiences. Now, of course you came from the Met, right? And, and going from being in a pit to on stage, what was that like for you and the kinds of adjustments you had to make? Yeah, that was a huge adjustment. I, um, all those years I spent in the, in the Met, it was great. It was like a different, different experience. And of course in Cincinnati, but then going to the Philharmonic was like just a shock to my system, really. Mm. Because, and it seems funny, but 
one of the things is just just the bright lights. Mm, <laughs> you forget you forget that it feels it does feel different. Like mm -hmm. it seems seems different, and people talk about that like it's a joke. But honestly, I th I think that was actually one of the things that felt different. I felt very exposed, Interesting. like very very exposed. Um, and so it's almost like um, you have to adjust. Your body has to adjust to the energy of doing that. Um, it didn't. Um, it didn't help that I played almost like every major clarinet solo that first year. <laughs> so, yeah. I remember you came to Oberlin in the middle of all that. Actually, it was right. I was not the first year, I think, and you did a recital here. And I remember you being pretty frazzled because you were in the middle of a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah I mean, we were playing. It's like it's like Galanta dances. And there's this wild, crazy solo in El Salon, Mexico. Yeah. And like, I had never played that before. And, um, you know, Capriccio Espanol and, you know, you name it. It was yeah. like, bam, bam, bam. And not to mention the Nielsen Concerto. Right. You know? right. I had to resurrect that from, from high school. Right. With you. <laughs> and it was just such a wild year. So there were all these things. And so, you know, I literally had to, I had to get up in front of the mirror every morning and say, you deserve this. This is your dream. This is like a dream come true. Don't let the negativity of your head and your mind um, prevent you from performing at a, your really high level. You know, you've been working for this your whole life and you can do this. So do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No time to think. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's great about, you know, when you're younger, you were just talking about how it sometimes gets challenge more challenging mm -hmm. as you get older. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that when you're younger, you're not thinking about anything. I mean, it's like, yeah, if you just just practice a whole bunch and like mm -hmm. get out there and you kind of do it. Um, yeah, the thinking can can hinder you if it's not the right kind of thinking. That's great. That's such a great great topic to talk about because it is something that I think a lot of people think about. You know. Um, yeah. Another thing that I think is really important um, to ask you is is you know managing the um sort of professional relationships that one does both in orchestra and or chamber music you know and and i always find this as an interesting thing to talk about because students um often don't quite know how to word things in a way that or express things in words in a way that that uh when you're working with other people to have positive results right and and Navigating uh, those those um, sensitive uh, musicians is, is is tricky. So, I wonder if you have any sort of thoughts about that and and um, how you're able to navigate and manage it. Yeah, I think the most important thing is is kindness, really. So it doesn't mean that you're you have to always, you know be nice, but it's actually thinking about how am, how's what I'm going to say going to come off? <laughs> yeah, know, right. Like, like or, or for instance, especially in the professional world, orchestral world, like, is what I'm going to say important enough that I need to say it? You know, that's another thing that you need to think about. Mm -hmm. So um, how much is, of this is um, just my own thoughts and insecurities coming out? Or how much of this is necessary for us to play really great music together? And most of the time, over the last twenty years, 
it's actually much more important important to just play music, to just mm-hmm. play music, and and be friendly with as many people as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Because when you start um, thinking about your your position as a musician as being something that you always have to use to be um, critical of yourself and to others and about others, then it becomes you have more difficulty, I think. And um, so if you come from a space of, I'm going to try to make really fun, beautiful music with everyone, then it actually, it, it's, um, it's going to be a lot easier. It's not saying that I haven't had any serious conversations over the years, tough, tough conversations sure. and, and arguments and disagreements with people. But in general, the philosophy is that you try to be friendly with everyone you're making music with or, or everyone you're interacting with professionally, too. So that the distinction between being professional and being friendly is not that much of a difference. Mm. And I, I frankly, I think that it's probably helped me in my career that I've managed to navigate that pretty, pretty well, mm-hmm. that um, you don't, you just don't want to, to create lots of um, enemies. And you want to, it's actually one important thing is that it's about respect of other people too. Mm that the way you communicate with people you have to understand that everybody deserves respect and you do as well but they all everyone else does deserves respect and that doesn't mean that means if it's a, a teacher a colleague a student you name it everyone kind of deserves this this kind of um uh respect and if if you think about it like that then and you're, you're going to make mistakes sometimes right Mm, of course, you're, yeah. you're going to react negatively to something or overreact. And as soon as a lot of times when I do that, I, I do try to own up to that. Mm-hmm. And I say, maybe I didn't say that right. And mm-hmm. that's not what I meant. You know, or I got heated and I understand that, but this is what I really meant. And this, and, and so if you can try to, even in an email form, try to be, try to be nicer, um, or, and try to, uh, try to think about how your messaging might come off. And that's hard to do, mm. but it's pretty important. You know, like maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm just assuming that I can speak like this to someone um but maybe you shouldn't assume that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, we're all in this together. We all love music. It's a passion and it's something that we all have to respect each other and and uh it definitely is a important part of of the collaborations that we build you know um i mean just doing this right now is just so it's so great i mean i i I, it's such a um sort of this whole experience has been surreal really i mean for everyone i'm sure and 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 to see um you know someone that i taught for so long ago doing what you do it just makes me very proud so um so moving on before I get teary eyed, I know uh, me too. <laughs> I I I uh, I guess one of the the next questions um, that I thought would be interesting to ask you is, in this particular time and 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 you know we're all dealing with different kinds of um, aspects of music and and through uh, the internet and and uh, Zoom and Skype and all the different. Uh, programs that we're using, I guess I would ask you, um, in your mind, and you're thinking about sort of future projects and collaborations with, with others, you know, is there something that you haven't done yet that you really want to do? 
Wow. That's funny. Uh, musically, like as far as pieces yeah. or yeah. like well, just uh, uh, projects, even or collaborations or things, projects that you're that you on your to do list, you know, bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, actually. Oh, well, you know what? <laughs> this is a good one. Okay. I haven't, um, and this is a musical one, and I haven't thought about this as far as that sort of collaboration. And virtually, you know, I'll be honest, all these people doing all this virtual stuff is so impressive, especially the people that do like the multiple videos. Yeah, absolutely. That absolutely. is so crazy impressive because, you know, I've tried to, I've done a couple little projects like that, and I am so bad at it that I, I think you guys out there listening that are doing that stuff more power to you yeah absolutely it does not come easily to me it's absolutely. like my my age shows when i'm like what do you mean you put what track what what are the pickup notes to the you know so you guys keep doing it um uh, but for me i think it's just been about trying to stay healthy like mm. mentally and physically frankly mm -hmm. and regarding the clarinet i mean you know, I should take this time to, to actually learn the Carigliano Concerto, which I've never learned before. <laughs> That's what I should do. <laughs> Piece of cake. Yeah, learn it, right? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> learn it and then forget it the next day. Remember you said, like, there's some pieces that you just, every day you have to come at. And, yeah, it's so, so true. But I'm, so not, true. I'm not putting that out there. I'm not making any promises to, okay. to learn that. Okay. So my students, if you hear this, don't expect me to demonstrate that piece when you bring it in. So, <laughs> so. Are there any new works that you've done recently that, you know, you really love and anything that in particular that you'd like to share? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, the, the trio that I did with, with my brother, it's not so new. Um, but um, the uh, shoot, Valerie Tom, Valerie Coleman. Oh, Coleman's, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. That's a really great piece that I love, um, and this, a few of those pieces on that album with the trio are really cool. Um, there's a really um, cool quintet that I'm not sure many people know about that's out there um, by uh, Shulamit Ron mm. for a clarinet and string. Mm -hmm. uh, quintet that I did a few years ago. That's a really cool piece. Um, I'm excited about um, a new a new piece by the composer Ben Shirley that I just got the music for for clarinet and string quartet that I'll be hopefully premiering next season or the season after. Mm -hmm. um, that's really neat. And there are probably some more that I'm not thinking of right now. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but you know, that's what's funny about some of the repertoire, just quickly, that I've done. Like, I didn't really specialize a lot in, in newer music, but what's great is that music is always new if it's new for you. So, yeah. for instance, I did my first, um, uh, this season, last season, I did my first Wings by Joan Tower. Oh, cool. For her birthday, like in front of her, you know? Oh, nice. <laughs> and and it was the first time I'd ever played that beast of a piece, you know, with endurance and everything. And it was just one that it felt like it was brand new. I know ever lots of people have done it. And it's like, but for me, it felt like so new and so exciting and and so fresh and so hard. And I just I just I think it's to to develop your repertoire whenever you develop it is really great. You know, um, so I think when, you know, if I were someone, you know, a younger student, for instance, 
in college or high school and on a pause, I would use this time to like actually learn all those new pieces that are, mm. or, or old pieces that you yeah, haven't right. done before, yeah. you know, just to, to get, gain that repertoire and gain that, that experience with it. Yeah. And there's so many pieces that I think we can use for certain techniques that are so great to, to relate to and, and, and have students use because it, 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 um, you know, I think about the Berio Sequenza or something like that, where it's just amazing control of long tones and things like that, which are just fantastic, you know, for everybody to do. Um, right. There's so many examples of things like that. Um, I love, I should point this out to the audience here. I love that whenever, um, you know, I'm thinking, what kind of piece should I do for this or whatever? And like when, frankly, when my students ask me, you know, what kind of piece should I, I'm like, oh, let me, let me call Richard up and find out. <laughs> Let me ask. Okay, Richard, I have. I need a six-minute piece. I need to do a solo clarinet. Blah blah blah. So everyone, keep calling your 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 teachers to find out like what rep you should do. Like you know, or anybody who you know knows all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I remember when I was in college and and you know, I remember it being difficult to. Um, sort of find out what the new stuff was at that time. Cause you know, I mean, yeah, there was no internet really. I mean, you know, I think I was one of the original members of AOL, if that tells me about it. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, you know, so we were going to the library constantly and, and seeing new things and things would be coming in, you know, and that sort of thing. But it was, it was definitely a challenge to find new works. And now it's like, it's phenomenal how many, how many things you can find, you know, and, and, uh, and there's some great stuff out there. And so keep them coming. I mean, gosh, there's so many talented composers out there. And that's another comment that I will make about composers. Composers are people too. And people need to understand them when, when, when composers write things that are so crazy difficult that just ask them, hey, maybe, maybe it could be a little easier this way or something like that. Because they want their music to be played as much as possible. And... And that's something I'm always encouraged students to do because it 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 can help the works um, become, you know, part of the repertoire. Um, but um, yeah, okay. So going on, talking about students. So now here you are, and you're teaching college students. What kinds of things are you looking for in your prospective students, and and um, the things that that. Um, create the the mix of success for you in your mind what are those things that you look for yeah it's really interesting i i think i i listen for um the ability to communicate so especially under the pressure of of an audition you know that everyone, and that's another thing to realize that everyone that you're playing a college audition or high school audition, whatever for, or seating audition, everyone that's sitting on your jury, for instance, understands what you're going through physically, mentally, all of these things, because we've all been there. So that's another way that you can kind of settle your mind if you have, if you're thinking about auditioning for colleges next year or what, what have you, um, or for an orchestra, you know, big orchestra, small orchestra, everyone understands what you're going through. So what we often miss is this, the performance aspect of your audition mm. that 
So uh, it's very easy to hear when someone is not really performing. So you either let the moment get get to you, so it's like you aren't communicating, or you lose your breath, or you're just um, you know it 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 just doesn't doesn't go well. And sometimes that happens. So even if if I understand that as a listener, then I can kind of get to okay. Um, so there are a couple of things you can hear. You can most of the time you can hear if somebody made a mistake versus someone who possibly just didn't prepare enough. Mm-hmm. So there there are those two distinctions. Mm-hmm. So and it's and and sometimes that amount of preparation you can hear based on certain fundamental things like it sounds like there hasn't been enough enough practicing done so that the sound isn't as developed as it could be or that a passage is just not has never has never been prepared enough mm. at a base level that that mistake wasn't just a mistake it was like it was never there were a series of them that it sounded like it was not prepared enough right so yeah. th- those those are the, the that's that's the technical part and that happens a lot so, so then when you have the folks that have, you know, that if they've prepared a lot and hopefully prepared in the right way, then it's like, um, what are they saying? Can you tell how much, frankly, for me, how much, how, can you tell how much they love music, first of all? Mm. Can you tell how interested in, in, in performing or interested in how much like desire do they have? And so it's, you can tell right away if, if someone, and this is actually comes to like what you come off as Mm -hmm. you can tell if someone is like, or sometimes people project this and don't mean it. Like, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. So especially looking for a student, if you, you don't, I'm looking for a student that, um, that it seems like they really care Mm -hmm. and that they have a desire to to do this they have a desire to perform they have a desire to be there in the room with you yeah all these different things that are very subtle that have very little to do with playing Mm -hmm. can come across Mm -hmm. so and then you have someone that has all of those things they've they've prepared they sound nice they're sensitive to what's going on in the room at the moment and it seems like they really care about music making and care about um, thoughtful expression. And so if you find someone that has that kind of spark, it doesn't have to be perfect, Mm -hmm. but it inspires you to want to listen to them more and to help them, you know, catapult out there into the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great people can make great players Mm -hmm. or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we're, we're towards the end of our, our talk and already, believe it or not. And I think uh, we've got some questions. I think uh, Sean is going to come in and in a second. And um, I guess I would just, before he comes in, just to tell you, thank you so much for doing this. This is awesome. And so inspiring to listen to you. And uh, I know everyone else um, out there is really appreciative. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This is so great. Absolutely. That was a great discussion. And I agree that it feels like it went by very quickly. So maybe in the future we have to book an hour and a half for these. <laughs> maybe. It feels like only a few minutes have gone by, but some excellent wisdom, 
I love some of the ways you explain some of the concepts. I've been meaning to put my finger on how to describe some of that stuff for years. And it's like you have it just all figured out. So it's so interesting to listen to you, you guys chat here. So we've got a few dozen questions that have come in. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to include as many as I can. So I didn't want to do it this way, but I don't have a timer here. But I think it'd be great if we could just try and limit responses to like a minute or something like sure. that. We can hit as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, my favorite question that came in is this one, because this is something that I've struggled with with this whole current situation as well. But, um, it's from Marilyn Lim. When you perform from home to a virtual audience, how do you think about connecting with the audience? And how is that different from performing in a physical venue? Yeah, I was um, thinking about this. Oh, short answer, short answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> not too short. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think the same way, if not more. So you have to, when you're on stage, you have to put out a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of, like I said, you have to have that desire to connect with the audience because they're staring at you, right? And so actually when you're performing for the computer, if you will, or in an empty room, just imagine that you still need to put out similar energy. You mm -hmm. still need to actually um, let yourself go, let yourself get into that in the same way. And that's kind of scary because usually, you know, when you're live online, you're like, oh, um, and you just like, you know, you haven't left your home in a month or, or two. Mm, right. Like you're maybe, you maybe feel like you're not in your best shape possible. Like maybe you're not, maybe, maybe the sound of the mic is not going to be great or your read isn't going to sound really great. And then you kind of have to just forget about it. So it's been actually pretty nerve wracking to do those online concerts. Mm -hmm. And then you just kind of have to, once again, as you perform every day, you have to forget about all that stuff. And then just what comes out, you know, comes out and you hope someone enjoyed it because you yeah. were musical. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah, a lot of the great performers, yeah. as always, make it look so easy. You know, you watch those assembled videos on YouTube and it's like, oh, I can do that. And you sit down with your mic and uh, you have the weirdest problems with technology all the time. <laughs> Even now, I really want to look at you. But you're on my screen, and when I look over there, all of a sudden, <laughs> right. I feel like I'm rude. But then I want to look at your actual face, not my microphone. So, anyways, um, these are some of the bizarre problems of technology that we all have. But um, mm. real quick, I don't want to dive into this too too far. But what microphone are you using to do your your live broadcasts, and and would you be willing to share what that is? Yeah. So right now I have two because I was just brand, brand new at all this stuff. And I, um, the one I have now is a Shure MV5. Mm. And, um, and then I have a Blue Yeti X. Um, and so I've, I've probably used both of those for different things. I don't know, you know what the differences are, but this most recent one, I just asked my wife, like, which one sounded better? And she picked one. So. Mm. And I'm using the Snowball, which is made by the Yeti company, I believe. And uh, it's been quite good. I've been using those for lessons the last last month. So, yeah. yeah those are great. A few people asked my questions, so I hope that helped answer it for you. Um, the next question is from Catherine Cedarborg, I believe is how you pronounce that. She says, I'm now finishing my master's degree and hoping to take a couple years off to develop as a player to teacher. How do you go about working on your own without a private teacher? And I love this question because everyone faces this problem, but they don't realize they're going to face it until they don't have a teacher to consult on a daily basis anymore. Um, should I? I should go. Okay. Sure, I, and then we can do. 
Richard. Okay. Order. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I think that what you should remember is that everything you've learned from all of your teachers, your entire life up to up until this point, hopefully you've been listening. <laughs> because, <laughs> because basically you should try to do those things. You know, you should try to remember. Now, what was this again? And so in all those lessons every week where your teacher was telling you, do this, do this, do this, do this, that they're hopefully they're just not talking to a brick wall. <laughs> you, that you're, yeah. They're saying this every week so you can remember it and hopefully try to continue that. The other thing you can do is go back through some of your old etude books or scale books and see any notes that maybe your teachers has written and things like that, because it'll bring back a lot of memories. Um, you know, just going back and doing rows number one, you know, like that's, that's actually something that we should all do often because it, it brings you back to sort of a fundamental of, of remembering the things that you went through, you know, and, and uh, it's kind of amazing. I, I always try to tell people to do that. Like just, Go back and do stuff you know that you've done for a long time because you'll learn more about yourself. And the other thing is when you teach other people, you learn more about yourself too. So yes. like teach, teach as many people as you can because you'll learn a lot about your own, uh, your own playing. And in fact, I mean, you know, in, in my, in my 20s when I taught Anthony, I mean, I was just astounded by some of the people I was teaching and I was learning from them. <laughs> Because they were learning from me, so I, I think it's a really important uh, important factor. Absolutely, I love that. Um, Simon Akos asks, "What is something that you would tell your seventeen or eighteen year old selves? What advice to your younger self?" Play slower. Yeah, I would tell myself play slower. <laughs> play slower. You know, it's <laughs> funny how many people say that. Um, even Glenn Gould said that in one of his later interviews, you know, he wished he slowed down and took his time with the pieces. But yeah, I mean, I remember hearing my teacher, you know, play excerpts when I was in college, thinking, "Gosh, come on, play it faster," you know, like. And now I, I think back to it and like, yeah, how dumb I was, you know. <laughs> uh, well, to, yeah, to Simon, I would say, listen to your teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you do want to achieve some of that flexibility and performance, though, that, that Anthony, you were talking about. Um, but if you're you know, limited in your speed of playing, you're not going to be able to go faster in the moment. You might make one of those mistakes you were mentioning, right? Mm. <laughs> Love that. Um, this question, I knew this would come up, but how do you approach orchestral auditions? I feel that. Uh, you're an excellent person to be asking me about that. <laughs> oh, that's how much time do we have? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I would say this about orchestra auditions is that, um, and actually for concerto performances too, if you're preparing this this amount and you're preparing, you know, doing this, um, I would say do this much more. <laughs> and then do this much more. And always search for what more you can do to um uh, and you need that feedback too you need to play for as many people as possible you need to do mock auditions like 20 or 30 or as many mock auditions as you possibly can but serious ones you need to get that feedback um, tape them and then work on those aspects of, of your playing in the specific excerpts um and uh i could go on the list is like really long for 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 how to prepare for orchestra auditions I can and then just yeah a, bit a different way if that's okay um, reframe it a bit. 
you mentioned playing music that's always due to you. So how do you go about making these pieces, which are becoming rather old to you, sound new in the moment, and fresh, so that it's going to make the best impression of that audition? Oh, yeah, uh, that's a very good question, because I do have, you know, students saying, I'm really so tired of playing, you know, Beethoven six, or I'm so tired of playing Mendelssohn scherzo. And I would, I would um, say that you need to go back and listen to those pieces. You need to put the clarinet down, listen to those pieces again, and see, okay, this is a really beautiful piece. It's not just an excerpt. You know, I'm playing the excerpt because I'm trying to do that well. So that's my project. But the piece itself, you can't, you really can't be sick of it. Like, I mean, you know, if you're sick of Beethoven six before you even get into an orchestra yeah. and, and are playing it 100 or 200 times, then, you, you know, maybe, maybe you really need to point. understand like yeah. how much you like music or not, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so if we're playing the excerpt so much in such a, like, uh, in, in a inhumane sort of way that, that we, we can't feel it anymore, then just put the clarinet down. And, and go listen to like a bunch of Beethoven string quartets or like, or what have you, you know, and just get the feels back. Then when you get the feels back, come and play it like it's um, the Beethoven septet or play it like it's um, your favorite chamber music piece and, and get flexible with it that way. I love that kind of honest truth of the matter. Like that is true. If you find you're bored of it in the audition process, maybe this path needs to be reassessed for you, right? And I remember one time I was learning I was trying to impress my wife who was dating at the time. And we, she was into, into karaoke and I was not into karaoke. And um, I looked up some tips for singing karaoke online and one of them said, it's okay to not be good at karaoke. <laughs> it's like, it might not be <laughs> and I was, it was kind of a wake up moment. I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, also, well, just sorry. quickly, also, you're going to have dips. Yes. You know, it's not all going to be roses. Like to practice these things as much as you need to, it's not always going to be fun and games. You know, so it's going to be really hard and you might get bored. And and that doesn't mean so after you listen to the piece doesn't mean you don't need to come back to it. You just need to take a little breather, take a break, and then maybe you'll you'll get more inspired or or just work, you know, and keep working even when it gets hard. So that's the other issue of reality of this thing is that, first of all, you're not going to win every audition. You may not win any auditions. Um, but the point of doing this is not just for that. It's for searching for like, you know, trying mastery. It's for searching how to be better, how to get, play them better. And, to, you know, for some, some purpose that is not just like winning, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every day can't feel like a winning. It's, it's up and down the whole way. Um, this is one of my questions. I was hoping I could interject. And it's actually the perfect time. I was going to ask you and Richard as well. Um, how do you deal with those plateaus in your career? And I imagine too, that you are, um, kind of at a peak of the musical scene for sure, obviously as principal of the New York Philharmonic. So where do your horizons see to now? What is the next kind of big thing? And how did you deal with these dips along the way of your career? Oh, well, I, th I think you're never at a, um, you're never at a peak. I think it's not like, um, oh, it's it's like what was that? It's not like a mountain. You're not like there's no I don't, top to reach. Yeah. I, I don't think so. And I've never, I've never thought so. I think, yeah, there are like levels in your own personal growth and development that you feel like you've accomplished something, mm -hmm. but it's never like, okay, I'm here and that's done. And I just get to sit here and like be on top of a mountain. It's not like that at all. It's much more from, it's much more horizontal. You know, it's, it's yeah. your life is like, 
you know, a series of peaks and valleys and it's more like just just the land and you're discovering new things all the time. Yeah. And yeah, at times in your life, you might feel like um, there are certain, you know, roadblocks that you may jump over, you know, humps that you may get over that might be nice or even rewards that the world gives you. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but that just because you get those rewards doesn't mean like you're like the king of the mountain or something, you know, <laughs> like you, yeah. you've all, you've also gotten lucky along the way and had some really great opportunities in your own life in particular. So that's how I feel about mine is that I think I'm, I don't think I'm somehow because of my position, I'm like somehow really in a, in a way superior to my students or superior to anyone else in the, in the field. It's just that I, I've gotten this thing, you know, but that's what the world has given me because of my, some of my successes, you know, in a particular audition. But if you think more horizontally, then you don't need those things. You don't need to get to a peak to feel like you've actually accomplished a lot in your life, you know, to, to know that you've had a ton of success in your life. Success doesn't necessarily um, go with, um, you know, those kind of rewards, I suppose. You know, and especially in today's time right now, it's important to remember that. Mm. Absolutely. I love that you feel that way. There's a book called The Practicing Mind that talks about this. And it's interesting, whoever you talk to, it seems no matter where they are along their journey, they still can see the same horizon. Like if you've floated halfway across the Atlantic, the horizon is just as far as when you first started. Mm. So um, you can see just as far. My screen is frozen up here. Um, oh, there still here. You're fine. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Richard, did you have a response to that question or? Uh, I guess my it's very much <laughs> in the same uh, same line of thinking. I guess I would say the clarinet is a love hate relationship, and mostly love. And sometimes when it's the hate, you have to put it down and walk away, and come back the next day and love it again. And I think that's sort of part of everyone's experience uh of any instrument or voice and and i think uh i think that's what drives us you know and and i think if there's i i i never think that as i said earlier anthony mentioned there's always someone that's got something that you don't have (laughs) and you're always striving to improve the things that you don't have and I, i i think that's just part of what we do Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to be mindful of the time here, and I'm so thankful for you both for making the time to to chat with me today. Um, there's still a couple list of questions plus, but I think we better wrap things up because I know that this is a busy time with the end of the yeah. semester and all that. So, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, and for all those listening, um, you can check out this broadcast and conversation again later on the Kearney YouTube channel at Kearney.com, um, on the podcast or um, on the Facebook page. Here. I believe it will go right here after this if you want to skip back and check out the beginning so thank you so much to richard and Anthony for this excellent conversation great insights were shared and i look forward to everyone's reaction to this i think this was an amazing conversation and i look forward to more in the future so anthony thank you thank you so much all right talk to you soon thank you all thank you all right. 
thank you for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. No matter where you're listening, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you can get access to future episodes for free right to your device. Next time will be a conversation between Richard Hawkins and Boris Alec Verdian of the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. If you have a guest suggestion or want to just say hi or send some feedback, you can do this by sending me a message at feedback at clarinet.com. And if you want to chat with other Clarinet listeners, there's actually the Clarinet community on Facebook. You can talk about today's episode or anything else to do with the clarinet I almost said the clarinet. My my phone actually auto-corrects clarinet to clarinet right now. (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? But anyways, the clarinet community, and you can chat about the clarinet in there with other clarinet clarinetists. How's that for a tongue twister? I'm proud of myself (laughs) for having said that. Anyway, also, if you listened all the way to the end of the show, it is true that you are one of the show's number one fans. Did you know that most people don't make it to this point? That's just a natural thing about podcasting. A lot of people skip off and head off to do other things and forget to come back, but not you. You're still here listening. But that also means that you are my prime target audience for becoming a Patreon backer and probably that you would enjoy the content in there the most. Patreon supporters of the Clarinet Podcast show get access to extended ad-free episodes from $1 per month or whatever you think the show is worth in your life. I want to especially thank our gold backers who are supporting the show with at least $10 per month. We have Robert W., Jason S., Glenn K., David S., Andrew M., William L., Miguel D., Debbie A, Patty S, Josh N, and Karen D. Thank you so much for making the show possible every week, especially to you listeners, but also to all of our other 71 Patreon backers. Thank you also to our sponsors. We have Legere Reads, and you know what? If you haven't tried these, you really owe it to yourself to do so, especially this winter as as things start to get drier again. You know, in Canada here, it was actually blizzarding again last week, and I think people, I think I comment about this about every October here on the show, but um, you might be surprised that in Canada, winter really starts in October and doesn't really let up until, I mean, this year it was almost May, which was really hard because we're all stuck inside during the the start of the pandemic. But anyway, I can't tell you how nice it is to pick up my clarinet, slap on my reed and actually play no matter what the weather is outside. The other day, I actually saw a post on Facebook and people were debating, you know, how do you care for your reeds? And, you know, people do various things from singing to them to, you know, various soaking methods and all these things. But I just put mine on in play because I play Legere and it's that easy. So check them out at Legere Dot com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. And if you play bass clarinet, you'll be thrilled to know that they now actually have a European cut available for your instrument, in addition to the E-flat and B-flat reeds that have been out for a while. So check that out, Legere.com, L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. Thank you also to Bakun Musical Services for sponsoring the show. You can get 10% off your next accessory, that's barrels, bells, mouthpieces, or even clarinet purchase when you're shopping at bakunmusical.com. Don't forget to use code CLARINET at checkout. And also for Canadian customers listening, you can now shop in Canadian dollars. When you go to bakunmusical.com, it will automatically recognize that you're in Canada and those prices will be displayed for you in Canadian dollars. There's now free shipping to all U.S. locations and within Canada on all purchases. You can check that out again, code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com for 10% off your purchase. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, signing off from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I look forward to seeing you next time here on the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists.